with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of The Brando Cast. Holy fucking shit. If you have watched television in the last 30 years, you have heard the words written by my guest today. Yeah, go to IMDb and just type in the words fucking Andrew Reich and prepare to have your mind blown. But more importantly than that, I think this dude is working on a documentary about one of the most legendary Southern California punk bands, which is also the subject of the Brando cast today. I believe Mr. Andrew Reich is here to tell us about Red Cross. So without further ado, please welcome writer extraordinaire and now director, Mr. Andrew Reich. Brendan, it is so good to be here. See your face. It's been quite some time. Well, I have That's to. I got. I got to tell everyone the little story about how this happened because it's. <laughs> I know it's crazy. It's it's fan fucking tastic, and it's all because of the podcast. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I get a text out of the blue from my friend John Ross Bally, who has been on the Brando cast a couple times, and he says I have a friend who has an extra ticket to the Circle Jerks at the Palladium. Do you want to go? Now, first of all, I had been planning on going, and I had been lazy about getting tickets because I still don't quite know what the protocol is for being in a crowded arena with a bunch of people because I already got COVID at the Foo Fighters. So I said, yeah. And the next thing I know, I'm texting with a stranger, and the guy knows that my name is Brendan. And then all of a sudden I get a text that says, wait, is it, who? what's your last name? And I wrote Smith. And he says, is this Brendan Smith of my boys and the farmer's market fame? Next thing I know, I'm texting with someone I've known for a long goddamn time. And it turned out it was you, Mr. Reich. Since 1990, I figured that farmer's market karaoke reference is not something that everyone knows about you. Because uh, that's going back a while. And, well, I mean, holy Christ balls. Uh, and you're also someone who, I think, do you still have an office at the farmer's market? I do. It's where I am right now. Uh, by the way, Theater of the Mind people, uh, Mr. Reich has a wall. <laughs> are those framed album covers? Those are framed album covers, yes. Okay. That is, uh. I am so fucking jealous because I have a couple. I have Iron Maiden Killers. I have Scorpions Blackout and I have Rush <laughs> Permanent Waves. But you have a beautiful wall filled with amazing, I see Ramones, I see Damned. Uh, I don't have my glasses. I see Liz Fair exit to Guyville. What's so funny is that you have like I think of you as such a metal guy because I feel like when we met in the early '90s, it's to me at least this is my memory that you were much more like on the metal side of things. And so I was, you know, so when you were looking to buy the Circle Jerks ticket, like I don't think of you in that way. But I think that's wrong. I think that's my you know, putting you in too small of a box. Um, well, I know I appreciate that box because it, it is true, but I love Iron Maiden as much as I love Husker Du. Does that make any right. sense? I love Sonic Youth as much as I love Judas Priest. It all, like, the bridge that's built by the Ramones and Motorhead allows me to bounce back and forth between those two genres. Sure. I gotcha. <laughs> but I think you, I think you gravitate more towards the, the punkier sides of things. Well, I mean, I, I like that's, that's my roots. That's the, you know, my musical journey began when, for whatever reason, I went into my older sister's room 
one day when she wasn't home and I put on the first Clash record. Why it caught my eye, I'm not sure, but I just put that first Clash album on her turntable and that changed my life. And then after I listened to that, I was like, oh, maybe I'll listen to this Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols record. And that, you know, before that, I think I was like aware of music. I'd maybe bought, I think I'd bought like the Rolling Stones Hot Rocks because it was like, I don't know. And and I liked it, but I wasn't like passionate about it, you know. And I listened to what was on the radio, which was like Dancing Queen and 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover and whatever. But I didn't like feel any passion until that day where I put on The Clash, you know. And so from there, it became... You know, the Buzzcocks and then hardcore band. You know, I had like a friend of my sister's who introduced me to like Maximum Rock and Roll fanzine. And then it was, you know, Minor Threat, Bad Brains, Agnostic Front. And I was this, you know, I was growing up in New Jersey. I was taking the path train to Hoboken and then getting the, you know, or taking the train to Hoboken and the path train into the city to go to CBGB's hardcore matinees and you know, <clears throat> Adrenaline OD, which was like the big New Jersey band. And 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 that was kind of it for me. Like I was like all hardcore all the time. And I had a, a I DJed at my high school radio station. I had a hardcore radio show. And part of the reason for that was like you could write away to, you know, write letters to record labels, indie record labels, and get free records. You know, you say, like, I've got a radio show, here's the playlist. And you would write to Touch and Go and Discord and wherever and just say, hey, will you send us some free records here and we'll play them on this radio show. And one of those labels was called Gasatanka. And they sent, among other records, the what would have been the third Red Cross record, which is called Teen Babes from Monsanto. See how I'm segueing so nicely. <laughs> I feel the, it coming. <clears throat> I feel it coming. Into the subject subject of this podcast. So I was sort of aware of the name of Red Cross because they were part of this like first wave of SoCal hardcore bands with Black Flag and the Circle Jerks. And I had probably heard Annette's Got the Hits, which was from their first record and had been on some compilations and stuff. But I never like I wasn't like a fan. And then this record, this third record, Teen Babes from Monsanto, is is almost all cover songs. Uh, so they cover Deuce by Kiss. They cover Citadel by the Rolling Stones. They cover Savior Machine by Bowie. They cover Heaven Only Knows by the Shangri-Las. They cover Blow You a Kiss in the Wind, which is a song from the, sh- the television show Bewitched. Um, and they cover Anne by the Stooges. I didn't know most of these songs. I, you know, they were covers, but I hadn't heard. I don't think I'd even heard Deuce by Kiss. I think I heard their version of it. And they, there was something about this record where it was still felt like it was coming from a punk rock world, but it was bringing in this sort of classic rock elements in some way that sort of opened up my little 14, 15 year old mind to feeling like, okay, everything doesn't have to be the Cro-Mags and, um, you know, it doesn't have to be just like thrash. Like these songs are really cool. They're, they're still kind of hard and, you know, there's still heaviness to it, but there's just, maybe there's something to, to listen to this, like their satanic majesty's request or, or even kiss or, you know, um, or the man who sold the world, which is what that Bowie song was like obscure. And it was very, 
you know, just eye opening and mind expanding for me. And it really just sent me on a musical journey to the point where it was just kind of like, I'm much more of a well-rounded music fan than I, you know, than I was at that time. And it's just maybe a lifelong fan of this band. Um, so yes. So that's all to say punk rock was really where I started, but I branched off into lots of things. Metal for me, it's still like, Yes, Motorhead. Yes, Metallica. A little bit of Anthrax, a little bit of Slayer, maybe a little bit of Celtic Frost, Carcass, some of that. But it's like I never went like I'm like Maiden and some of that stuff. I wish I I wish I could fall in love with because I know that's a great band, but it's just never been my thing. Well, I I will not spend any time trying to convince you um, (laughs) uh, uh, anything about Iron Maiden. I would just remind everybody that the Legacy of the Beast tour is underway. They played Belgrade. Uh, last night, they are coming to Anaheim, California later on this summer. Um, it is a tremendous show. Why don't we do this? I'm going to pull everybody else into the story of Red Cross. Red Cross is an American punk rock band from Hawthorne, California, the fucking South Bay. The band had their roots in 1978 in another band called The Tourists, which was started by brothers Jeff and Steve McDonald, while Steve McDonald was still in middle school. In April of 1979, the band had their first practice at drummer John Stylo's house in his parents' living room. The first song they played was Annette's Got the Hits. Other songs such as Cover Band, S&M Party, and I May Hate My School were also played at that same first practice. With the addition of local pal Greg Hetson, the band opened up for Black Flag on their very first gig. Now, before we talk a little bit more about Red Cross, and, and I want to hear about what you're doing, I want to say you mentioned going into your older sister's room and that theme of the older sibling or the older friend or the friend's older brother or the friend's older sister or whatever. It is such a constant but awesome theme on this show. I love it so much because I think that you and I are both Gen X. I think we're almost exactly the same age. And we needed those older kids to pull us out of the sugar, the the power pop and the bubble gum and the kiss and the Elton John and the share and the chic of it to get to the clash and the sex pistols and the Ramones. Like we did need those older siblings to do that for us. Totally. And it was her and then, and her friends, you know, it was like driving with her and her friends and they put in singles going steady by the buzzcocks. And it was like, and that was my, and the very first concert I ever went to was the circle jerks. And I went with my sister and, and a friend of hers and they were playing at this little bar in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And he so the the floor was too crowded so we stood on the stage and the, we stood on the stage next to what seemed to be roadies setting up you know their gear and then at a certain point they took their like kind of wool caps off and that was Keith and Greg and at the time it was like Chuck it was a great tour it was, you know Chuck Biscuits on drums and uh, Earl Liberty on bass and like I was standing and that was the band and I was right next to them and they played kind of Ramon style, like no breaks in between songs, just this like 30 minute, like blur of like inc- incredible, you know, just the first three records. And that was the first concert that I ever went to because my sister was cool and her cool friends liked me and they 
took me along. And so that's why I wasn't that bummed that I missed that show, The Palladium, because I knew it was not going to be as good as Patrick's in 1983. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for sure. Like it was all, you know, it was it was. And then, you know, here and there was like another like, you know, I had a friend who had cool taste in music. And, you know, at, at that time you needed someone who like you had money to buy records. You could only hear the records that you had or a friend had. And so, you know, they had the friend who had like singles by the damned and stuff. It was tough to, to hear those things. And someone could like make a tape for you of something, but for sure, that older sister thing, that thing from that's an almost famous and whatever, like it was, it's completely key to, you know, my musical journey. Like I know it is for so many people. How much older was your sister? She's two and a half years older. Okay. So, and, and, and were you? And has terrible taste, <laughs> terrible taste in music now, and lives in Idaho and doesn't know shit about music. But you know, she's still like, you know, she was going like. I think for my sister, it was about how can I piss off mom, <laughs> and like punk punk rock was a great way to piss off mom. And then for me, it became like I don't need to piss off my parents. I just love this music. Like it wasn't about the fashion. It wasn't about really the rebellion. It was just about like connecting to that music. Did she fully go down the road of the fashion as well? Oh, yeah. She had like, you know, shaved one side and dyed all kinds of crazy colors. And at that point, you know, it's like 82, 83. But, you know, that in New Jersey, that was pretty it was radical stuff. This is pretty hot topic. You know? What uh, what part of New Jersey are we talking about specifically? North Jersey. I'm from Morristown, New Jersey. OK, North, so was a- North Central Jersey. Was Action Park a part of your childhood? It was not a part of my childhood. It's so funny. I love that class action park. Uh, and I talked to our mutual friend, Ira, you know, Ungerleiter about it, you know, and he said he went like four or five times and got injured every time. I never, my parents must have known better even at the time. I never went to action park. Sorry. <laughs> no. I think- no. My like, da- my dangerous thing was going to CBGB's hardcore matinees. Like that was the dangerous thing that, that I did, not action park. But that's, uh, that, it, that experience and I'm so jealous of of you guys who grew up on the East Coast who did that because, you know, I was living in, you know, my parents, I've talked about this on the podcast a thousand times. I moved, my mother moved us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Albuquerque, New Mexico uh, when I was in seventh grade. And Albuquerque, New Mexico was a desert wasteland. And yeah. th- part of the reason that I am metal was because of that move to Albuquerque, because Albuquerque is a heavy metal city. Our Native American brothers love Ozzy, Dio, Priest, (laughs) Sabbath, ACDC, Rush, Van Halen. So all those bands came to town. Our version of punk rock only filtered down through Thrasher Magazine and some of those early skate punk videos that were put out in the world on VHS. You know what I mean? Like, there weren't that many punk bands. Yeah, that it was came not a punk city. rock town. No. Yeah, and there's, I feel like there's like, I can't even think. I think there's a band called Jerry's Kids with a Z who might be from Albuquerque, <laughs> but I feel like there's, there's so many cities had, you know, Reno had a scene and like all kinds of smaller towns, like, you know, Norman, Oklahoma, but not Albuquerque. Albuquerque did not have a hardcore scene. No, it, and yeah. it was metal. And, and, yeah. and, and the burnt. It's like Fargo Rock City. Your story's like Chuck Klosterman, right? You're like Fargo Rock City. Well, it's City so funny. Like kinda... You're the person, you're, you are actually the first person to tell me to buy that book. I don't know if you remember this, but <laughs> I saw you in Runyon Canyon a million moons ago and you're like, I read this book and you have to, you have to go get it. Fargo, uh, Rock City, and and the difference between me and Chuck Klosterman is just a couple years in age, right? You know what I mean. Whereas like his wheelhouse was that sort of late '80s metal, because by the 
by the time the late 80s are around, I'm in Chicago and I've fully converted to replacements Husker Du, um, early Pixies, Sonic Youth. Right. Whereas he's like a, ha- he's a hair metal guy. He's like, a hair yeah, metal he guy. A, I was never that. Yeah. I was yes. Sabbath. I was the power <laughs> of the devil, Dio. Yeah. Did you, like, when we were out here early 90s, were you going to the strip? Like, did you go to, to I, shows there with, like, Laura and Allison? Were you doing any of We tried that? to. We tried yeah. to, and it was dead. The strip was already, the metal scene was over. I'll, I, I, The Decline of Western Civilization Two was one of my favorite movies. It was made for me. I could not wait to get here to go to Gazzari's, to go to the Coconut Teaser, to go to with the whiskey. And by the time I got out here in September of 1990, it was all cheese metal, and it was over. Yeah. And we're, we're two years away from Nirvana's putting a spike in the middle of that uh, metal heart. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's so funny. I guess that's true. We we moved out, by the way, the exact same month. Like we, we've been here the exact same amount of time. And I guess I remember driving down the strip just to gawk at all the like cheesy metal. But you're right; it was already probably pay to play, lame bands. Oh yeah, it, 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 yeah, it, it, it was. Over. I remember going. We would go to the Coconut Teaser because my fr- if you remember, my friends and I lived in a house near Fountain in Fairfax, and we would go to the Coconut Teaser for happy hour because they had free hot dogs. <laughs> which was a, uh, yeah, which was a heavy, sure, yes. a cheesy heavy metal yeah, club yeah, yeah. on the corner of Sunset and Crescent. Yeah, oh Heights, god, yeah. Which became a very affluent uh, club later on. But um, so we would go there. The whiskey was over, but I was going out. I was going out a lot to go see Urge Overkill, Sonic Youth. Um, my bands that were coming to town were playing at Raji's, and then we're playing at Club Lingerie. Yeah. Raji's was the Raji's was the greatest. Yeah, that's right. I, I saw I saw the Muffs a million times at Raji's. Saw so many great shows. Yeah, you know, so we were probably yeah. I mean, I was seeing all those same you know, seeing Urge Overkill, seeing early shows by Hole and exactly. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Once Dinosaur Junior started playing, you know, all that kind of indie rock stuff. I was going to too, and seeing Nirvana early when they were you know starting to play out here. Um, and I had I had my musical Sherpa really showed up for me in college, which was a guy named Matt Sweeney, who was from New Jersey. From Chavez. From Chavez. And he went to Northwestern for two years. And he was the guy who said, hey, my group of friends, here are the bands you should be listening to. You know, Brendan, put down the rat, put down the Queensryche, put down the maiden. (laughs) Here is the Meat Puppets. Here is Das Damen. Here is, he was the, the first person I knew who just loved Soul Asylum, like that 1987 version of Soul Asylum, who were incredible, and he that guy was. And a, did he go ahead? Did he give you? Did he give you Neurotica by Red Cross? No, but I knew. But he loved Red Cross, uh, and then he soon dropped out of school because he was on. Uh, he had a band on Twin Tone before Chavez. There was he had a band called Skunk, and we would actually drive up to Minneapolis to uh, see Skunk, like when they played seven, the 7th Street Entry for the first time. A whole mess of us drove up to see that show. So by that time, I had already learned what the 7th Street Entry meant in the history of punk rock. So that was like more exciting to me than anything else. The name Red Cross was allegedly inspired by the masturbation scene from The Exorcist. In 1980, the band soon began working on their self-titled debut album. It was an EP. Now, eventually, Greg Hedson left the band to join the Circle of Jerks with his buddy Keith Morris, who had just left Black Flag. Red Cross went on to complete the lineup for their first full-length album, 1982's Born Innocent, 
by assembling a revolving door of musicians. Full of the McDonald Brothers pop culture obsessions, Born Innocent features nods to Linda Blair, Charles Manson, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, Tatum O'Neill, and Lita Ford. Not long after the release of this record, the group was threatened with a lawsuit from the International Red Cross. They were then forced to change the spelling of their name to R-E-D-D-K-R-O-S-S. Um, Andrew, I apologize. These are just very simple notes that I put together from Wikipedia. I sort of edited what they had to say about Red Cross. So if there's anything that you want to fill in the blanks with right now or as we continue on, please do so. Yeah, I was wondering how much fact-checking uh, <laughs> I, I, I should do on that. I, I wish that story that Red Cross, um, that the name was inspired by the the uh, scene The Exorcist was true. It is not. Yes! That That is not true. Yes! Um, which my documentary will uh, will will debunk that. It, it, but the actual story is not as good as this. Greg Hetson, you know, tells the story that they were just in the basement. Someone cut themselves, and they were like looking for a band aid. And the band aids they had were like Red Cross band aids. And someone's like, "Hey, what about Red Cross?" And that's really the story of where it came. And then also, I think um, Greg Ginn of Black Flag didn't like the name their original name, which is the tourists. And, th- and, and when this name red cross came up, he thought it would look cool on flyers, black flag, red cross. There's like a nice symmetry there. So, see, so, you know, so yes. So you have to keep in mind. Okay. So Hawthorne in the South Bay, a town that's, if it's known for anything is known as the home of the beach boys. The, the Wilson brothers are, for, are from Hawthorne. Um, now it's known as where SpaceX is located. So I guess that's now. See, I, I, rem- I knew it as the home of SST Records in the 80s, because when you would send well, away for stuff, you would send it to Hawthorne, right? You would send it to Lawndale. To Lawndale. You would send it to Lawndale, which is the town right next door. Okay. So these guys, so when they, so Jeff and Steve, so yeah, so they're they're 11 and 14 when they start this band. Jeff has, you know, somehow, Jeff McDonald, and, and, they, and they're the only constants in the band, and the documentary is really about Jeff and Steve McDonald. It's about this, the, you know, this relationship of these two brothers who start this band at, at this, you know, such a young age and are still going. Jeff had this ability to to just know what was cool um, from such a young age. So he heard, you know, a Patti Smith song on the radio when he was like in Big Bear, and he's like, what is, what is this? He didn't even hear the announcer say what it was, but then was later in a record store and saw the cover of Horses, and it's like, this has to be the per- the woman singing that song that I heard. He, he could just tell from that Robert Maplethorpe picture that like, that was it. He... He buys the Runaways album. He starts buying the, you know, the the Ramones, and he's and it's really the Runaways that makes him, you know, on the first Runaways album, it says how it says the ages of all those those women: Sherry Curry, Joan Jett, Jackie Fox, all of them, and they're teenagers. And he starts thinking like, okay, they're teenagers. They're they're sixteen. I'm fourteen. Like I could start a band, and 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 the Runaways is and Patti Smith is also cool because this is a band where they love female artists so so much you know they they took that their goal was to be an all-girl band and on that born innocent lineup you know it's them and two women it's like the closest they they got but anyway they're in the middle of this sort of cultural wasteland of the south bay which is all cover bands and nothing cool so far from that hollywood scene which is happening with x and the germs and the go-go's and the alley cats and 
But Jeff would have to ride his moped like 30 miles from Hawthorne over, you know, like it's if you know the geography of Los Angeles, the idea of like being 13, 14 and riding your moped from Hawthorne to go to the mask in Hollywood is crazy. But he (laughs) had a vision, ropes his little brother in and always had this kind of like image, like, you know, what's a, you know, what's an image and almost like a Kim Fowley kind of PT Barnum kind of thing of like, and an 11 year old bass player to him was like, this is something we could run with when he meets. So Jeff and Greg Hetson have a photo class together at Hawthorne high school. And Jeff's got a punk rock flyer on his peachy folder and or Greg does. I can't remember one of the they, they'd spot each other like, OK, do you like punk rock? And they, you know, no one else like punk rock. And so that's the connection they make, Greg. And he says to Greg, like, yeah, I'm putting together a band with my brother. He's 11. And, you know, Greg's like 16. And it's just like, what? But always use that. He used that um, when. So so they're they're putting this little band together in Hawthorne. They hear about Black Flag. They see the bl- first Black Flag single comes out and it says P.O. Box 1, Lawndale, California. And they start stalking the Lawndale post office box, hoping that the band will come by because um, that was how they thought they could make the connection. And they do make that connection. And Black Flag says, hey, yeah, come to the church where they rehearsed. If anyone's seen the first Decline of Western Civilization movie, you know the church. That's like the Black Flag rehearsal. Yeah, come by. The first time that Red Cross ever plays in front of anyone is in front of Black Flag in the basement at the church. And then they have a their drummer who's graduating from eighth grade has a friend who's having, who's having an eighth grade graduation party and looking for bands to play. And they're like, Hey, we could play. She's like, okay, great. And they're like, Oh, we have some friends. We have some new friends. We'll invite them. And they invite black flag to come and play this eighth grade graduation party at this little house in Hawthorne. And it's, you know, the, the stories of it are so great because, you know, they, the crowd's booing them. And then Jeff would say, this next song's an unreleased Black Sabbath song. And then we're like, oh, yeah. And then they would play one of their songs. And they kept falling for it. These, like, high school idiots who would crash this party or like, and they play their little, you know, and they're like, their their sound at this point is kind of like a little bit poppy. It's like kind of surf punk, what you, you know, what came to be called. And, um, and then Black Flag comes in and just like obliterates the place with their gigantic martial stacks and like blows everyone out of the room. So this is the beginning of this band. This is the beginning. Their first gigs are, are with Black Flag. They play with them a ton of times. Hong Kong Cafe, all those early L.A. punk venues. But they very quickly, and like you said, Greg Hetson, their guitarist, forms the Circle Jerks with Keith Morris. Ron Reyes, their first drummer, becomes the second Black Flag singer. Des Kadena, the third Black Flag singer, is in Red Cross for a while. But Jeff kind of starts to get disillusioned with the hardcore scene because it starts to become very violent. This thing that, the you know, the early L.A. punk scene was a lot of artists, a lot of women, a lot of gay people, a lot of people of color. The hardcore scene starts of kids from Orange County come in and that that hardcore scene becomes a lot of jocks, a lot of like white ripped surfer skater guys. And Jeff was just like, fuck this. Like, I don't want to be a part of this. And they grow their hair out, which is like heresy. No one had long hair. Like you got your ass kicked in the punk rock scene at that time. They're the first ones 
you know, Black Flag eventually grows their hair out. Lots of people do. Red Cross is the first ones. And they just kind of just say, we're going to do our own thing. They loved the Partridge family. They loved the Brady Bunch. They loved all that cheesy 70s culture. No one was was doing that. No one was like bringing that in and taking it seriously. They they did. And they make that Born Innocent record, which is a super weird record, which Thurston Moore says is like in his like top 10 records of all time. Stephen Malkmus of Pavement talks about it. But it's a real break. And um, it didn't it's like this sort of sloppy, odd record that was sort of almost trying to be a punk rock record, but just came out weird and came out as its own thing. And then from then on, it really is just like the band continues and I'll take a break here from from my Red Red Cross lecture, but obviously I'm so deep, you know, into this. But um, but they continue to evolve, and every time people kind of catch up to them, they pivot, and Jeff's just like goes in a different direction that eventually music kind of catches up to. But by that point, he's off doing a a different thing. So all of the Seattle bands, and in my documentary, I've got guys from Pearl Jam and Mud Honey and Soundgarden because they're all fans and they all worship uh, this, you know, worship Red Cross. But by the time grunge hits, even though Red Cross had really influenced that grunge sound, they had moved on to a different thing. And I think it's why they've, you know, they, they've stayed this cult band. You know, maybe it's self-sabotage. Maybe it's just an artist who's always following his muse. But they never had that commercial success because they just were always kind of like a slightly out of out of step with the time. Uh, totally understood. I want to make three um, weird little points and then I'll, I'm going to jump back into the, the history of Red Cross, uh, according to Wikipedia, which we now know is wrong. <laughs> but one, Keith Morris told me when he was on this podcast that he and Greg Hedson decided to do the Circle Jerks when they were at a Journey concert. That's one. Number two, if I could build a time machine and go back to very specific musical scenes, the two scenes that I would love to go back to in L.A., because I feel like you and I missed something, you know, by moving out here in 1998. Yeah. Um, definitely the Sunset Strip in the 60s. Not necessarily Laurel Canyon for me, but like going to see the birds at Ciro's, uh, going to see the Mothers of Invention at the Whiskey, like I, even seeing Sonny and Cher, I would fucking love that more than anything because I love that kind of 60s music. And then then the late 70s punk scene. Um, and Because I've had the good fortune of talking to a whole mess of people, a D.H. Peligro from uh, the Dead Kennedys, you know, living in a shitty apartment in, in East Hollywood, there were the whole bunch of people down in the South Bay, as you've said a couple of times, um, traveling around the city to go to the Ukrainian Cultural Center or Madame Wong's or even the Starwood back in the day. Like, I wish that I was a part of that. And I'm, and on that note, just when you mentioned uh, the McDonald brother riding a moped from Hawthorne to Hollywood. Okay, <laughs> here's my moped story. Back in the, the day when I was doing My Boys, they TBS paid me like the extra money to do a blog, like in the early days of, <laughs> of a blog. And I was supposed to be the guy who wrote the blog about like what was going on behind the scenes of the show. 
And it was so easy and it took me, you know, 10 minutes to do. And every week I would get like, you know, checks for like a decent amount of money for no work. So I thought, okay, what have I always wanted? What what am I going to spend this quote unquote disposable cash on? What have I always wanted? Well, I love the who. I love Quadrophenia. I know. I want a Vespa. I've never been on a Vespa, (laughs) but I want a Vespa. Oh, shit. Vespas are really fucking expensive. Okay, what's the next best thing? Ah, a Yamaha Vino 125. Cut to me at the old Yamaha shop on Highland and Fountain paying cash for a brand new Yamaha scooter, buying a helmet right there on the spot, and then the guy going like, okay, see ya. And I'm like, well, wait, wait. Oh, I'm supposed to ride this home. Oh, okay. I see. I lived in Silver Lake at the time near the Edendale Grill uh, for anyone who lives in Los Angeles. All I had to do was basically go straight down Fountain all the way until it turned into Hyperion and then somehow get to my house. And it was, I never rode the moped ever again. (laughs) The scooter, the Vespa scooter. I mean, it was the scooter. Like it was a motorized... (laughs) fucking scooter it was the most terrifying i almost died twice because no one sees you on that thing riding fountain the whole way death grip on that and so anytime i see like little asian hipster girl with a yoda backpack like whizzing through silver lake or los Feliz, i'm like god bless you sister because silver lake ain't nantucket you know what i mean This is and this is this is the lesson of being a Who fan. That's where it got you. That's where that'll that's where that'll get you. But you know, I had to, you right. I had to have one. Yeah, yeah, they look cool. They look badass. Because <laughs> I'm a I'm a mod. In 1984, Red Cross released Teen Babes for Monsanto, an album featuring covers of songs by Kiss, Bowie, The Rolling Stones, and The Shangri-Las. The guitarist Robert Hecker joined the band at this point, and they embarked on a tour in support of Teen Babies from Monsanto. In that same year, they were featured on the soundtrack for the cult movie Desperate Teenage Love Dolls with their cover of the Brady Bunch Kids' It's a Sunshine Day. In 1987, Red Cross released Neurotica, an album influenced by Saturday morning cartoons and breakfast cereal. Although the album itself was successful, the band's label, Big Time Records, folded soon thereafter. Um, We only have one more blurb to read about Red Cross. How much did I get wrong in that last paragraph? No, that that that's not that was pretty uh, that was that was pretty on the money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think Wikipedia got most of that right. Yeah, that neurotic album, which I so I was in college when that came out, and that was another really mind blowing record. Um, just you know, uh, a combination of heaviness and happiness, um, and a Gen X kind of they're never like really fully ironic and they're certainly never parodying any of this sort of junk culture that they talk about because they're such genuine fans of it but it was bringing in all these influences from my childhood that I hadn't really thought about you know HR puff and stuff and you know all these things that were just sort of part they're in your brain but they certainly hadn't been brought into anything cool and having that all brought into this 
this music, which just didn't quite sound like anything else. It had elements of metal. It had elements of bubblegum. It certainly had still had some elements of punk rock, but you couldn't call them a punk rock band. And I just wore that record out. And I think that record, like I said, you know, everyone in Seattle, when I talked to like uh, Mark Arm and Steve Turner from Mudhoney and, you know, who were in Green River at the time, the way they talked about it, they're like, at that time in Seattle, the punk kids and the metal kids were starting to cross pollinate a bit, starting to hang out at the same parties. But you're at the party and, you know, the punk kids aren't going to stand for the Dio record. Like, you, you know, it's sort of like, what can we what can we agree on that we can throw on the turntable? And Neurotica was played at every party. Like, they could all agree, like, that that record rocked. And so by the, when they came to play uh, in 87, you know, up there, everyone wanted to to open for them on that show. And the, the opening bands were Green River, which is a band that splintered into Mud Honey and Pearl Jam, um, a band called Malfunction, who I think members of Malfunction also sort of may, I think, ended up in... Um, Pearl Jam 2, I think I may be getting that wrong. And then Soundgarden. So those are the opening acts. And Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic are in the audience. They haven't gotten their shit together yet to actually form Nirvana. But they're, you know, they're in the audience. All those bands are just like seeing, you know, this is these are the headliners. And they get left out of the history of, of grunge. And people don't think of them as, you know, an influence on that scene. But anyone who's there says like, oh, no, those guys huge influence but they had such a specific like southern california take on it they're 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 a happy band you know they're not an angsty band which is one of my other theories for why they never quite really hit it huge in the 90s because what was huge in the 90s was angst you know kurt cobain and alice in chains and sound like that's all really angsty music you don't get that from red cross you get a lot of just joyful uh emotions from them um and so yeah so that's all like wikipedia is uh is pretty is pretty right on um <laughs> well so, so they're one of these bands that you know i this is such a cliche people say about so many bands but like oh they're your your favorite band's favorite band and they have that element where musicians tend to know them much better than the the you know the the public at large and they connect all these elements, certainly of Los Angeles music. Certainly they have connections to that time that you're so, mis- you know, nostalgic about know, that, that I am too, that late seventies punk scene. And Jeff McDonald is married to Charlotte Caffey from the Go-Go's. Um, and they've, you know, they, they played with Sherry Curry and they played with members of the Cowsills and they, you know, they, they just joined together all of these elements there's there's very and, and they were even kind of because of the way they looked they had this very glammy new york dolls influence kind of look that really influenced motley Crue and poison and you know poison opened for them and they got lumped in a little bit with that scene which they hated like they never wanted to be a part of that but i've got like issues of like metal maniacs and stuff where there's like a picture of motley Crue and a picture of red cross next to them because it was confusing because the look that they had of this you know they were just trying to look like the new york dolls which i guess some of those glam metal bands were too but those glam metal bands didn't have the spirit of the new york dolls the way 
Red Cross did, but they got lumped in with it. Well, the way I understand it from talking to some of these characters is that there actually weren't that many places to play. So, you know, now we know that uh, there were many nights at the Whiskey when the Dickies were on the bill and Van Halen was on the bill. And there were many nights at the Starwood when Quiet Riot was on the bill and, you know, the early version of the Go-Go's was on the bill. So it was like, that's, there just weren't, we think of like LA as this massive, huge place and there must have been a million places to play. But the truth is there wasn't that many places to play. Yeah, and the underground was small, so you right. couldn't separate the underground into all these little niches because it's just like it wasn't that many people. Yes, right. You're going to have fear and quiet riot on the on the same bill because it's all underground. It's not like the cover bands that are playing or the super mainstream stuff. But this so- goes back to my thing about like my my ability to sort of walk through both worlds. You know, uh, the, the perfect character for me is Vivian from The Young Ones wearing a Saxon <laughs> T-shirt. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But also Motorhead yeah. being on the young ones. So, um, and again, as I said at the beginning, Motorheads and the Ramo- Motorhead and the Ramones build the bridge between the two places. Duff McKagan could have ended up in a band like Soundgarden. Yeah. Yeah. And Duff McKagan was in hardcore bands. Right. He was in the, f- he was in the farts and the veins and like before, you know, so yeah, he's, he's a real connector of, of these two worlds. Uh, when you started Look, making I- this, when you started putting together this project did you already have this understanding of who red cross was or or did you what did you learn as you went along and really got into their story i i knew quite a bit because i'd been fascinated with them the thing that really made made me want to make the movie is a story i heard steve tell on a podcast about when he was 12 turning 13 he was in a relationship with this woman who was about 24 who was part of the (laughs) the real like core of that early she was part of the germs kind of circle friends of darby's and and they had this sexual relationship and she ended up kind of um basically abducting him uh it's a wild story where he lived with her, her mom and stepfather in Las Vegas under an assumed name, pretending to be her brother, not her boyfriend, for about three months. And that story, on top of everything else I knew about them and all of their connections to, to so many things where it's like, you know, their, you know, their album Third Eye has like a, a masked naked woman on the cover. Well, that's Sofia Coppola, who Steve was dating at the time. There's like a million little tidbits like that where they touch on all these things. But this story was so sort of fascinating and such a story about like that told so much about that scene and that time. And I was talking to my wife about it, about it and telling her more about this band. And I was like, you know, someone needs to make a documentary about Red Cross because they're just such a fascinating band. And she's like, well, why don't you do it? And like I said, you know, I'm a com- I'm a TV, com- I'm a sitcom writer. I've never directed a movie. I'd never, but I was just, I, I, I was just like, I don't know who else is going to make make this movie. And also, I just sort of saw it a, a, as a story of lo- about Los Angeles, a story about siblings. Um, you know, these guys have basically been business partners for over 40 years together. And they are such uniquely Los Angeles characters that could only be produced by this place um, that they sort of sound like s- surfers, but they... They know everything 
about every about Russ Meyer movies and and John Waters and every kind of pop culture and there there just couldn't exist anywhere else. And so I just kind of felt like, you know what? Maybe maybe I should. And I I had a connection to Steve McDonald uh enough that I could sort of pitch them, you know, you know, like would you take a chance on someone who's never directed a documentary but is just a huge, huge fan of yours and wants to make this as a love letter. Because the first thing Steve McDonald said to me was, "Is like, you're not going to make this anvil, are you? Um, and, and look, as much as I'm sure we both love the anvil documentary, um, I was like, no, th- this is not going to be anvil because you guys are an anvil. Like, yeah, you guys you're, are you're, you're legit. You're, no one cared about you're le- No one cared about yeah, anvil when they the were anvil. out. That no one cared right. about anvil when they were out. Exactly. Trust me. And they're not some great lost band that everyone should no. know about who's been making amazing music. No, they were just like, uh, you know, yeah, they were a joke. Like Red Cross has never been a joke. Red right. Cross has always been cool. People either don't know who they are or they really like them. That's what I've found. Like, um, so, and in the course of it, I, I definitely have uncovered lots of things that I didn't know, but mostly I have just more and more fallen in love with Jeff and Steve McDonald as they're just the most endlessly fascinating people you were. I've been working on this movie for like five years and you would think you get sick of a subject matter and I never do. Like I, I love every chance I get to hang out with them. Um, and you know, there are things that uh, one of the things I found out, which I wasn't really able to get in the documentary is that Jeff McDonald would hang out at video archives in Manhattan beach. And that was where Quentin Tarantino was famously a clerk and they were there together. Um, and be, and the the head of video archives was sort of instructing them on Russ Meyer movies and all these and all these things, and they Quentin um, he won't admit this and he didn't want to be interviewed because it doesn't do him any favors doesn't feed his ego in any way but Quentin was a huge Red Cross fan in Natural Born Killers there's two char- there's three characters named Jeff Steve and Chuck who's a friend of Jeff and Steve's totally based on Jeff and Steve McDonald in the original screenplay of uh, Pulp Fiction at one point he specifies that Red Cross's cover of Blow You a Kiss in the Wind is going to play the studio thought it was too lo-fi they replaced it with Urge Over Urge Over Kills Girl You'll Be a Woman Soon but the Quentin whole aesthetic is very much, you know, in film, very much what the Red Cross aesthetic is in music. And I didn't really recognize that connection that, you know, these these two South Bay sort of institutions of Quentin and Red Cross. That was something that came up. It's not really going to be in the documentary, but it's again, you know, it, it just it it just says so much to me because they're the same kind of pop culture omnivores that Quentin Tarantino is. And they, you know, they're doing a, a similar thing. So of course they kind of came out of the same video store, you know? Um, so yes, there's definitely been stuff that has, has come up and certainly just like, you know, again, like I'm a sitcom writer, like I didn't know what was involved and how you shape a movie like this. Now you take a 40 year career and turn it into 90 minutes. So, you know, there's, there's been a, a, a huge learning curve, but um, I think people are really going to, you know, dig the movie. And also just like when you see, okay, there's members of Pearl Jam and the germs 
and the Bangles and Mud Honey and Black Flag and Dinosaur Jr. And you know, it's such a variety of you know, sort of genres and kinds of but all of these people are in this film because they love this band and I'm hoping, you know, and Sonic Youth and, you know, like I'm, I'm hoping that that's something that even if you haven't heard of the band piques your interest because the, the people that are there to, you know, talk about them are far more famous than, than they are. Red Cross signed with Atlantic Records and soon released their third eye LP. They also appeared with David Cassidy in the film Spirit of 76 and issued several singles, including Annie's Gone, which had some mild success on college radio and even MTV. Former Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Jack Irons joined Red Cross for their third eye tour. The album Phase Shifter was released in 1993 with a bunch of new band members. The videos for Jimmy's Fantasy and Lady in the Front Row were both shown on MTV's 120 Minutes. Red Cross toured on the Phase Shifter album for over a year, headlining their own shows as well as joining tours in support of The Lemonheads, Spin Doctors, and Stone Temple Pilots. Red Cross has released seven albums and three LEPs, including 2019's Beyond the Door. Other notable past members... Well, they've all been mentioned by uh, Mr. Reich, Des Kadena, Vicky Peterson, and Ron Reyes. Um, dude, there's nothing that I would rather do than watch a documentary about a man. About a, I'm going to cut this and edit this. <laughs> there is nothing I would rather do than watch a documentary about a band, period. You know, I couldn't say anything about Sparks, but God damn it, did I love that documentary. You know, of course, I, I will watch the Rush documentary, the Maiden documentary, Flight 666, over and over and over again. It's how I like to relax. So I can't wait to see this. Because, um, again, that sort of post-punk, Husker Du, replacements, Sonic Youth thing really became my wheelhouse. Um, I'm so excited. So what's the final process? Where are you in, in, the, in the whole deal? <laughs> Uh, the, the, I should say, by the way, since you brought up the Sparks documentary that Steve McDonald from Red Cross played bass in Sparks for like five or six years. Again, the, the connections just go, they go everywhere. Um, the, the, the cut is mostly done. I'm at the point of things like, um, soundtrack, uh, graphics, uh, licensing, you know, just getting all the archival footage uh, licensed and and that kind of stuff. So all those kinds of finishing things, I'm still, you know, every now and then some amazing piece of archival footage like comes my way that I didn't know existed. Um, so there's a little bit more editing to do, but it's getting to those final finishing stages to hopefully get submitted to festivals, you know, for, for the fall. So, yeah. Um, it's a lot. I'm I'm like you. I'll watch. I will. You know. I watched that whatever six hour Eagles documentary. I can't stand <laughs> the Eagles, but you know, I watched every minute and loved every minute yeah. of that. So I will watch a music documentary. And so I'm coming at this certainly not as someone who's like, you know, directed music documentaries before, but as someone who's watched a million of them and knows. You know, I know what I like and don't like 
in them. And I know what I don't like sometimes is the ones that try and get too fancy, that try and get too art artsy and not just deliver what you want, the like the pleasures of just great archival footage. And all I want you know, is archival telling footage. Telling the story. All, all, yeah, there, right? there, there was a, a documentary that came out a couple years ago, the Jacob Dylan narrated Laurel Canyon scene documentary. And I'm like, yeah. just just give me all the bits from Hullabaloo. That's all yeah. that I want to watch. Don't, I don't want you guys sitting around a coffee no. table and giving me your thoughts on no. these records. No. I do not want this. No. I want this cut out, and I want you to show me more of that, you know, uh, that the footage of, of Stephen Still singing for what it's worth in that, like, incredible yes. sort of video. They have. The, like, give me that. Yeah, the Buffalo Springfield <laughs> on the Hollywood Palace, the whole thing. Yeah. Don't cut it. Yeah. Just, show Just don't cut. Just show the whole thing and maybe get some Arthur Lee and Love in there or something like But don't. Don't do this thing, which I'm sure you saw was so clever. We're going to have Beck and everyone. And like, Cat Power. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just like Steve McDonald also played with Beck. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't want that. I don't want like animated sequences. I don't want like, you know, the Nirvana, the montage of heck. I don't want these fancy, crazy, like found footage, you know, or things. I'd like, no, just tell me, tell me the story. Um, and so that's what I, and don't make it last two and a half hours <laughs> yeah right. um so so that's what i'm hoping to do as just a, a huge fan it's my favorite genre you know i love I, I love nothing more and you run out of them right you feel like oh these streaming services there should be an endless amount of these things but no you know you run out so it's been really it's been fun it's a lot more fun than network tv development you know and you know it's uh, it's a true it's just a true labor of love and if i can do you know sparks are playing much bigger they're selling out big venues because of that documentary that's the dream right that like you know you introduce some more people to this great band and they start being able to play you know slightly bigger venues it's just like that's what it, that's what i would love to do, you know, because it's just coming out. I'm just coming at it as a fan. That kid who got that Teen Babes from Monsanto in the mail at the radio station when I was 14. Dude, that is um, that's beautiful. I mean, that's really fucking <laughs> beautiful. That is the that is I would imagine that's the reason that you moved out here. Truly. I, I think that, you know, we've been in show business for a long time. Right. And the business part, just like, you know, it's it, it's hard to to just connect with the fun part the the passion and yes i think came out here for, for out of a love of like you know tv and movies and especially music it was so cool to come out here and be able to like see the whiskey and see these places that you've been hearing about like drive by oh that's where the mask was and all that stuff and more and more those things you know because i also i also have a podcast which i should probably plug since i'm on here i do this dead i do this podcast called dead pilot society where i take comedy pilots that were sold and developed but never shot and cast them and do table reads of uh, you know and then interviews with the creators and that's the other thing it's like the documentary and that podcast that podcast is has no business like part of show business we just we put on a show, we get a bunch of great actors and they show up and we do a cold read and everyone has fun and you don't have to worry about notes and you don't have to, you know, no one's getting fired. And for everyone involved, it's just a pure love of putting on a show. And that is, again, the spirit of like when I first came out here. So it's a, th these are the things that just like that feed you right because the the stuff that actually makes you money is often quite 
soul crushing and is so far removed from, you know, I have just such memories of like you from like 1990, 1991, and just this group of people. I wasn't from Northwestern, but I hung out with your whole crew, you know, here at the farmer's market. I, I, I can remember when it was just surrounded by empty parking lots and we were like hanging out <laughs> in that park. There's Mortigan's nursery. And then it was just like parking Dalton's, lots, right? And just B. Like, Dalton's bookstore. Yeah. B. Dalton's bookstore, Mortigan's Nursery, and a huge amount of just like empty parking lot. And we were all out here just idealistic and wanting to like make stuff and, you know, going to see people's 99 seat theater on Santa Monica Boulevard or whatever. And it's just like so easy to just lose touch with that. And so, yeah, so the podcast and like making this movie, which is just like I sat in a room and interviewed Ron Reyes and Des Cadena. And it was like the 13 year old me is just losing his shit right now. Like these are the, the my two favorite black flag singers, no offense, Keith, but certainly more than Henry, like, and I'm getting to like hang out with them. That's, you know, I get to hang out with Charlotte Caffey from the Go-Go's like, it's incredible to me. And so much, you know, like, yeah, I spent years on a soundstage with Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox. Way cooler to me to be with someone who was in the Go-Go's or Black Flag, you know. So it's just been the most fun project ever. Well, dude, that's amazing. I I mean, one of the best days of my life was interviewing Black Francis on this podcast. Um, yeah. Ahmed Zappa and I just got to talk to Gene Simmons on our uh, Sirius XM radio show, Rock Tales. <laughs> Well, I'm on Zappa. Gene was very kind to us, but of course he's a Frank fan. So, but yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. So dude, so good to catch up with you. I mean, truly you too. Yeah. So good to catch up with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Publicly. Thank you for that circle jerks ticket. Um, uh, Andrew comped it for me. He said, I can't take money from you, uh, because I'm basically still living like it's the fall of 1990. Um, I forgot to do that career part. But, um, dude, I'm just so I'm so psyched to see this project, and I can't wait um, until it comes out. Me too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait. And thank you so much for participating in the BrandoCast today. Thank you, Brendan. It was great. Great to see you. You too. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing. So many great guests coming down the pike. But come on, Andrew Reich brought the thunder fucking today. And, of course, the BrandoCast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. I heard the other day that she-